Mighty God and Father, we worship you this morning. We praise your name. We thank you that your word is alive and active. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would grow us into the image of your Son as we open up your scriptures together. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen. You can be seated. We are continuing our series in First Peter today. And in light of this text, this will be a little bit longer than normal. For the past two weeks, we have been considering Peter's counsel beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, for how Christians are to live faithfully to Jesus given their historical context. His basic instruction is this, abstain from evil and sinful desires and live good, honorable, beautiful lives. Lives that will be characterized by doing good. And Peter hopes, minimally at least, that these good lives would silence the ignorant talk of others, of their critics. So verse 15 of chapter 2, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. So that's the minimal hope, but the maximal hope is that the witness of these good lives will lead others to faith in Jesus, that they too might glorify God. Then in verse 13 of chapter 2, Peter gives a specific principle, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men or to every human institution. This submission is not a servile attitude, but it comes from a place of strength, freedom, and fullness in response to and for the sake of the God who is worthy. We are free. So verse 16 in chapter 2, live as free men, he says. But we are also at the end of that verse, servants, or slaves of God and told to live as such. It is for the Lord's sake, Peter says, that as slaves of God, we are to remain submitted within the structures and relationships that we find ourselves in society. Quite honestly, we don't like talking about submission. It's not very take charge American. It doesn't often resonate with the qualities that we admire in others and often in ourselves. We like the person who can get things done. The person who can walk in a room and because of their magnetic charisma or or towering intellect can inflict their will on others. But that is not the direction that Peter takes us here as we shall see. And in large part because this is not the nature of the Jesus that we serve. In today's text, chapter 2, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 7, having applied this general principle of verse 13 into the civic sphere, as we saw last week, Peter now applies this principle into the first century Greco-Roman household, addressing slaves, wives, and husbands. And of course, as we read these words, I am quite confident that for many of us, our defense mechanisms are activated. At first glance, this text offends our convictions around justice and equality. But we should not take modern notions and sit in judgment because of them upon the biblical text, this text or any other. Instead, we need to enter into the text itself and into the world in which it is written. And as we do so, I trust that we will see a different picture emerge Not one that erases or satisfies all of the questions that we might be asking in our minds right now. But one that challenges us and calls us into greater Christ-likeness. 
We'll examine Peter's instructions in turn, first to slaves, then to wives, then to husbands. And then we'll finish by looking at Jesus, who serves as the example for us all. But before going through in that way, I first want to say something about the context of the passage. The Roman Empire created a society that was all about power and privilege. It was all about securing advantage for the male citizens of the day. And everyone else was largely a pawn in that system. Yes, there was talk of peace and prosperity. But everyone knew that that peace was maintained by violence and brute force. And that that prosperity applied only to a select few. Rome, of course, invited you to join its happy peace. But if you resisted this invitation, your village and people were crucified and pillaged. It was a costly peace. It was a mandated peace. And it's this world, this unjust, violent, oppressive world, this world of insiders and of privilege in which the early Christians found themselves powerless, disadvantaged, not belonging, maligned, and mistreated. They are being accused of doing wrong, Peter says in verse 12. They're aliens and strangers, he says in verse 11. They don't belong because they serve another king. And it's into this world that Peter writes. In this powerful and perverse empire, in households where these Christians might be living with masters or husbands or maybe even wives who don't share their Christian convictions... Where because of their convictions they arouse the suspicion of those who are closest to them. How then are they to live? How are they to manage? How are they to bear witness? I heard someone describe the thesis of this section of 1 Peter in this way. How do you play well in the rules of a game you did not choose and cannot change? That's helpful. In a context where you lack privilege and power. How do you live faithfully so with that question in mind Peter takes up the household unit and we need to see to understand this text the socio-political function of these instructions in the Greco-Roman world being a good citizen and having an ordered household was critical to the stability of society thus what took place in households which were the locus of economic and educational activity was a matter of public concern. And there is much written about household ethics, from Plato to Aristotle to Seneca to Plutarch and others. The early Christians needed to engage these concerns and show that they were not a threat to the stability of society, as they were often accused of being. But they needed to do this without being unfaithful to the values and to the call of their new life in Christ. As one commentator writes, quote, Peter is especially concerned that the freedom of the gospel be expressed in the household in such a way as to not provoke unnecessary accusations against Christianity. At the same time, Peter understands that the gospel of Jesus Christ is subversive to the Greco-Roman social order. Peter informs Christians of their duties in a way that affirms part of the Greco-Roman social order while subtly rejecting those premises that are not compatible with the gospel. End quote. And as Peter does this, words that appear on first glance to be oppressive and backwards from our modern perspective are actually found to be deeply subversive, empowering, and transformative in his own context. For example, and we'll see some more examples of this as we study the text, Peter directly addressed 
slaves and wives. We find this unremarkable, but it was highly remarkable in his own day. This did not happen in any of the Greco-Roman household instructions. Believed to be inferior, they were not dignified with direct address, but were only communicated with through their masters or husbands. But here Peter addresses them directly in a public letter, and that is subversive and dignifying, reflecting the value that they have before God in Christ Jesus. Further, as we'll see, they're urged to behavior that is distinctly Christian and Christ-like, rooted in the identity that they have in the Lord as free people. So part one, first, to slaves, verses 18 through 20. He says, slaves, submit to your masters with all respect. Before examining the specifics of this text, let's start with the obvious question that every one of us is probably asking. Does the fact that Peter is addressing slaves here and telling them to submit to their masters mean that Peter specifically and the Bible more generally supports and endorses the institution of slavery? After all, pro-slavery apologists regularly appealed to the Bible using passages like this one and Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 to defend slavery. In fact, as David Opterdeck notes in his 2019 book, Law and Theology, pro-slavery apologists in, in, in the antebellum period in our nation, quote, argued that abolitionists were distorting the plain sense of scripture. But our rebuttal to this, of course, is an emphatic no. No, the abolitionists were not distorting scripture. No, scripture does not support the institution of slavery. We should note that Peter understood slavery in the old world in a different way than what we think of when we think of slavery in new world slavery. Old world slavery could in cases be more like indentured servanthood. It was not race-based and slaves could be well-educated, include estate managers, physicians, teachers, and private tutors who operated at all different levels in the first century household. Yet, even so, even with those differences acknowledged, Roman slavery was still inhuman, brutal, and fundamentally dehumanizing for slaves. It was a giant driver of economic activity in the ancient world and something on which that world depended in a way that our world similarly depends on electricity or gasoline. Slaves had no status, no power, and no protection. And they could be exploited at the whim of their masters. What then should we make of Peter telling slaves to submit to their masters? Here again, we need to remember the idea that Peter is asking how to play well in the rules of a game that we did not choose and cannot change. He is assuming that this game exists as it does and working within those structures. As such, Peter nor Paul make a front, makes a frontal assault on slavery. Neither of them do that. Though we should note that 1 Timothy 1.10 does list slave traders in a list of people who live contrary to sound doctrine. And it's also important to note that Paul tells slaves to avail themselves of the opportunity to gain their freedom if they can in 1 Corinthians 7, 21. 
instead of a frontal assault that from our modern vantage point we would have liked to see, what we do find in the Bible and with Peter here, as we'll see in a moment, is much more of a covert attack that lays the groundwork for the later eradication of slavery as an institution in society. As Paul writes in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And perhaps most powerfully of all in the New Testament, the short little letter of Philemon shows how the status differential that was gargantuan between slave and master is transformed by the power of the gospel such that Philemon is to welcome Onesimus back as he would welcome Christ Jesus himself as brother to brother. That is the dynamics of the gospel of Jesus Christ are blowing away the distinctions between slave and master as Paul writes about in that letter. The seeds are being sown. Sadly though we must admit those seeds would not flower for some time to come. As one scholar writes Quote, it will take centuries of moral failure and eth ethical vision for the church to see through slavery. End quote. The church in our own nation was part of these centuries of moral failure. And we must acknowledge and be honest about that fact. But we cannot let our frustration with that reality keep us from missing the explosively subversive power of the gospel to the eradication of slavery that has, at least in our culture and day, come into full flower. Thanks be to God. Is there still much work to be done to fully cast aside all the effects of this wicked institution and its lingering shadow? Absolutely there is. And we must do that work with vigor and strength and with the power of Jesus in the church. But I do want us to remember that it is the moral framework of scripture and the explosive truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ that more than any other factor have contributed to the efforts to eradicate slavery from human society. It is an institution that exists in all human societies throughout history. But it is the gospel of Jesus that provides the strength for it to be undone. Consider William Wilberforce in the 19th century, of course, and the inter International Justice Mission and its work around the globe in our present day. So what does Peter tell slaves to do? He, he knows that they lack all status and rights in the eyes of the culture and in the households in which they live. But as those who are free in the Lord, he calls them to submit. Submission means to yield to the authority of another. This isn't about failing to exercise power or defiance when necessary and possible. But it's more about the opposite of withdrawal. As Joel Green writes in his commentary, finding and occupying responsibly one's place in society and not passive or unreflective subjection is more to the point, end quote. What is it that makes this action of theirs, this submission of theirs distinctly Christian? Three things briefly. First, they do this for the Lord's sake. That's at the heart of the principle that Peter lays down in verse 13. Submit for the Lord's sake, he says. Their submission is a response to their true master, Jesus, and not to the worthiness or unworthiness of their earthly master. Second, he says in verse 18, they are to do this with all respect. But this is really, literally, with all or in all fear. And the question is, it's a legitimate question of the text, is does this fear pertain to the earthly master, as the NIV seems to suggest, or does this fear pertain to the Lord? 
And I would argue that in light of the preceding verse in verse 17, urging all of us to fear God, and the following verse in verse 19 that talks about being conscious of God, it is better to understand this with all fear or in all fear as a fear that is directed to the Lord, to God himself. Submit to your earthly master in all fear of God then, with God in mind, knowing that God is present and sees you, that you are accountable to him for how you live in this moment, in these relationships, and that you are cared for by him as well, as a father. This is what he asks of you, that you have a higher, deeper, more basic reality of your lives. That is the reality that is true of you in the new birth that you've been given access to by the mercy of God. And live in light of that reality, with or in all fear do this, he says. And third, the submission of slaves is qualified by the call of God to do good. So in verse 20, slaves are said to suffer for doing good. The question is, why would doing good lead to suffering unless it was something that the master didn't want or perceived as insubordination? So Peter is telling them subtly that they are to yield to the higher authority in their lives than their earthly masters, even if that means enduring suffering from their earthly master. And these three distinctly Christian features of their submission plant the seeds that come to aid in the dismantling of the institution of slavery. Yes, it's not a frontal attack, but it's a powerful statement to slaves of their new identity as the freed people of God, following a new and higher and deeper authority. Now, what is it that is to motivate them in this action and that is verses 19 and 20 that this kind of suffering for doing good is a commendable thing or more literally literally this is a grace when you suffer unjustly for doing good God rewards you Peter says with more of himself it is a commendable thing it is a grace so chapter 4 verse 14 if you are insulted because of the name of Christ you are blessed Peter says for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you God gives himself to us. This is a benefit and a reward. And, and Peter is encouraging these slaves to be motivated by this benefit, by the reward of God. And further, he'll go on to say this, yielding the suffering for doing good, he says, looks like Jesus in verses 21 to 25. And we'll come to look at those a bit later. And therefore, it glorifies God. This, of course, isn't just to motivate slaves, but it is to motivate the entire Christian community. We might wonder, and it's a fair question, why Peter doesn't address Christian masters, as happens elsewhere in the New Testament. But perhaps it's because the situation of slaves is paradigmatic for all Christians in Peter's day, who are all, as Peter has said in verse 16, slaves of God. Slaves lacked privilege, power, and status in a way that represented the situation of every Christian in that community as aliens and strangers. So Peter wants everyone, regardless of their situation in society, to hear his instructions to slaves as pertaining to all of them as believers. And his citing of Jesus in these next several verses as an example to all Christians supports this reading as well. This is a paradigmatic case that Peter begins with that teaches all of us about how to walk with Jesus. 
Now, at this point, it's important to note that one of the elemental ideas of Christianity is to write injustice. This is what animates much of our conversation and action around racial issues right now, a concern for justice and a deep care for those who are oppressed. And that is a godly concern. But we, we need to remember, again, that in Peter's day, none of the New Testament authors had any thoughts of immediately changing the unjust Roman Empire. Instead, they called Christians to belong to a colony of strangers here on earth, new and revolutionary communities which had, in which all had equal status and where all worshipped a Messiah who had been crucified. That is a statement to power and domination. But to remain within the existing structures of society as those who had been transformed and as those who could even love their enemies and submit to harsh masters. The existence of such colonies and if such faithful people would one day lead to change in the societal structures themselves. But that societal change was not an, a live option in that day. They could not protest or vote, and they had no legal recourse. Instead, Christians here were urged to live in the tension, to continue operating within the unjust structures of their day in a way that pursued good. As the social context changes and enables more of a possibility of actively pursuing justice, Christians, of course, are to jump in. And sometimes we have, and sometimes, perhaps oftentimes, sadly, we have not. But even so, even as we seek justice in our society, because we have agency, and we have rights, and we have, discourse, uh, we have recourse to legal systems, and we are very grateful for these things. We must remember Peter's teaching that this kind of living before God and doing good, even when suffering unjustly, is commendable before God. It is a gracious thing in God's sight. It is a grace and has a place even today in, in bringing others into the kingdom. This is our way and our example in Jesus, as we'll see. Now we go on to part two, where Peter addresses wives in chapter three, verses one through six, and the institution of marriage. And specifically, he's addressing Christian wives who have unbelieving husbands. These wives have encountered Jesus, the Jesus who had honored and dignified women throughout his earthly ministry. They are no doubt gathering regularly with other Christians throughout the week without their husbands, thus risking charges of impropriety and possibly being perceived as a threat to the household order. To what then does Peter call them? He calls these wives to submission in the same way as the text says. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. As with slaves to masters and as with all of us to governing authorities, as we saw last week, so also wives to your husbands. That means that this submission is offered for the Lord's sake. Again, back to verse 13, and in the fear of the Lord. In fact, verse 2 says, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. But this is literally to be translated, when they see your holy way of life in fear. Is that fear again, like with the slaves, to be directed to the husband or to God? And, it's, and it seems clear that this is about fearing God. Again, because of 2.17 and because of verse 18 in chapter 2 and because of verse 6 of chapter 3 where Peter says that they are not to give way to fear, meaning of fear most likely of their husbands. So in the same way, in verse 1, means for the Lord's sake 
and in the fear of God. Which means that wives are to offer this submission not because of the relative unworthiness or worthiness of their husbands, but as a response to the Lord, conscious of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, as those accountable to the Lord. It's important to note that what many of us hear as an oppressive text because of its call to submission, these wives would have heard as a dignifying text in their day. Why? Again, briefly, three quick reasons. First, again, as I mentioned earlier, these wives were addressed directly, and that was something that was not done in the culture of their day. Second, they were being affirmed in the faith that they had in Jesus, which was different from the faith faith of their husband. This different faith would not have been a welcome reality in their world. The Greek philosopher Plutarch, who was writing around the same time as Peter wrote, wrote this, quote, a wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon all rituals and outlandish superstitions, end quote. But Peter radically affirms these wives' commitment to Jesus outside of their husbands. And that is wonderfully dignifying. He goes even further, though, thirdly, and urges them to be on a missionary task in their own households. He wants them to win over their husbands to their faith. That is the goal, he says. You don't have to take his religion. In fact, live your life in such a way that your husband will be won over to this faith by the quality of your life. How incredibly dignifying this would have been. Now, I imagine many of us still might say, yeah, but Peter was calling them to submit, making them lesser. But this idea of submission, or that submission means lesser, is not a biblical idea. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father without in any way diminishing his equal status with the Father. And it is true, of course, that submission in the broader culture of Peter's day was rooted in a belief in a, in a wife's inferiority. But this rationale is foreign to the biblical call. In fact, in verse 7, which we'll look at in a moment, wives are affirmed as co-heirs with their believing husbands of the gracious gift of life. Men and women are equal image bearers, equal heirs of the gift of God. And all of us, not simply wives, are called to submission in various ways in our lives. We are to submit to the Lord, to submit to governing authorities, to teachers in our schools, to bosses and employees in our workplaces, to the elders in the church, as Peter will go on to talk about in chapter 5. And we are told to submit to one another. And here, wives are told to submit to their unbelieving husbands. None of these calls to submission implies inferiority. While this is not the question that Peter is asking or addressing here, I'm sure it's a question many of us are asking. We need to address it. Is the submission of a wife to her husband part of the cultural context that can be left behind, much, much like we have left behind the submission of a slave to a master? That is, does the New Testament plant seeds of disruption to the marriage order in a similar fashion to what happens with slavery? Is the submission of a wife in marriage a time-stamped reality? This, of course, is a debated question in the church and in our particular church, as you, many of you well know. And this is one of those differences that we as a church hold in charity with one another. Some would say, yes, that this order in the husband-wife relationship is a part of the fallen world that the gospel leads us to discard. 
Others, and I include myself in this group, would say, no, this way, of a submi- this way of submission of a wife to her husband, when understood and applied biblically, is rooted in the transcultural reality of God's order for the marriage relationship, an order that is witnessed in Genesis 2 and affirmed by Paul in Ephesians 5 as rooted in the reality of the relationship between Christ and the church. And we live within that order. And the bulk of Paul's instructions in that text are, of course, to husbands. And there is great blessing to be found. Yes, the power dynamics between husbands and wives in Western culture in the 21st century have been changed dramatically from what they were in the first century Greco-Roman culture. And we have to say, sadly, this was often in spite of the church because I trust this change in dynamics is something that all of us would say is a wonderful and good thing that reflects the heart of the biblical teaching about the equality of men and women made in the image of God. But I trust even as we celebrate that change, the change that sees men and women as operating what Carolyn Custis James has memorably called the blessed alliance, we can also say that that trajectory, which is beautiful and good, is not incompatible with affirming the order that God has given in marriage. An order that can be sanctified by the Holy Spirit and lived into by husbands and wives, albeit expressed differently in each couple and in each cultural and historical setting based upon particular gifts, personality, and societal customs. And it can be expressed in a manner that is beautiful, dignifying, and honoring to wives, to husbands, and to Jesus himself. Submission in any form is a posture of yielding that is voluntarily offered from a position of strength dignity, and freedom. It is finding our place in the relationship and showing up and flourishing as a result. It is not being a doormat. It is not being a diminished person. I know it has often meant this for wives because of the sin of husbands. And I believe that we need to acknowledge and speak the pain of that in the church. Too many women have suffered under abusive and domineering husbands that have sucked the life out of them. And this way of life has sometimes implicitly or explicitly been justified from texts like 1 Peter 3 or Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3. But this is a great distortion of the biblical view. Let's be clear, this teaching to these wives of unbelieving husbands from the first century does not give any legitimacy to an abusive, domineering husband, nor does it require a woman to stay in an abusive situation. We, the church here, are to call husbands to account and to provide support and refuge for any wives that are in such relationships. And if that describes your situation, please don't stay silent and know that we are, as a church, eager to help, which may mean, among other things, calling the police. The primary audience of these wives, as for all of us, is the Lord himself. Living in the sight of the Lord is key. Living like the holy women of old, they are to put their hope in God, verse 5. And that means more faithfully pursuing a beauty that is of the inner self, verse 4, rather than the outer. That doesn't mean that women can't braid their hair or wear jewelry, as has sometimes been interpreted from this passage. But it means not putting your focus there. First century Roman women could be incredibly elaborate with regard to their hairstyles. At a Society for Biblical Literature conference a few years ago, I attended a session that gave a demonstration of these hairstyles where for nearly an hour, a woman up front with long hair was given a braid that looked like a a human hair version of the Taj Mahal. 
It was absolutely amazing, but probably not something many of us would have said is beautiful in these days. And Peter is urging here that the beauty of a woman that a woman most deeply pursues is not primarily to be that which the culture promotes, this outward beauty, which is obviously an always ever moving target that shifts with the prevailing winds of culture and different moments, but rather the constant beauty of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, he says, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now note, this gentle and quiet spirit is encouraged in all of us, both men and women, in various ways. Jesus describes himself as gentle in Matthew eleven twenty nine, and gentleness is one of the fruit of the spirit. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, all of us are told to aspire to live quietly. This is about humility and meekness, honoring God with a quiet service of him and others. This is not this, not our external appearance or our success in the workplace or whatever else, is what deeply matters to God, Peter says. And pursuing this is central to what it means to live in the sight of God. I think most of you know that I have three daughters, and Mandy and I have done our best as parents to teach them the lesson of this priority of inner beauty. A few, a few years ago, when Mandy was putting our youngest to bed, she said to Mandy, when I get older and try to figure out who I'm going to marry, I'm going to ask him, what's more important, the inside or the outside? And if he says outside, I'm going to say, bye. And she's got it right. That is what matters most to God and what is to matter most to us. So here's Peter again. In these marriages with husbands who don't believe, submission is a sign of strength, he says. Live a holy life. And he finishes in verse 6 with doing good and not giving way to fear. That's the way he finished addressing the slaves as well. Doing good. That is the theme. In the fear of God, doing good. And that may mean resistance and defiance if your unbelieving husband is leading you down a path that is not good and not honoring to God. Just honor God and fear nothing else. Not even your husband, he says, and do good. This is how we live well right now. Now we turn in part 3 to verse 7 where Peter addresses husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And notice that we get in the same way again. That means for the Lord's sake and in the fear of the Lord, in God's sight, submit yourself to this institution of marriage and not the institution of marriage as the culture conceives of it, where husbands had unchecked power and authority and in which it was culturally acceptable for them to indulge every whim and appetite with those who were in their household, including their wives. No, Peter says. He speaks in a very countercultural way to husbands, in a way that calls them to God's intention for marriage. He says, in the fear of God, be considerate as you live with your wives, better translated as showing honor to the woman. And then he says, to show this honor to them as the weaker partner. In her commentary on 1 Peter, Karen Jobes writes this, quote, In the context of 1 Peter, the weaker vessel is primarily understood as physical weakness relative to men's strength. Therefore, Peter's exhortation indirectly addresses the issue of physical abuse. However, the immediate context makes it clear that the female is also weaker in the sense of, in the sense of social entitlement and empowerment, end quote. 
So what Peter is saying is live with her in a way that acknowledges this dual dimension of weakness in that day, physical and social. That means don't be harsh. Don't subject her to physical abuse or social mistreatment because of her weaker position in that day. Instead, look out for her. Honor her. Care for her. Protect her. She is an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. And that equality before God, that equality with regards to salvation, plants the seeds and lays the foundation for social change within the institution of marriage, where men and women see themselves as equals serving God side by side. Admittedly, passages like 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 can be looked upon with scorn by our modern world. But we need to understand something. And that is this, that the Christian teaching on marriage in the New Testament and on sexuality, here and in Paul, was revolutionary in its day and has raised the status of women in all the cultures where it has taken root. This teaching, of course, has not been faithfully applied and has wounded women and at times still does today. But that doesn't mean that it's not subversive and powerful. Tom Holland, a non-Christian scholar whose most recent book, Dominion, is about the Christian waters in which Western culture and Western morality swim, suggested in an interview that he gave about a week ago that, quote, Christianity gave women a dignity that no previous sexual dispensation had offered, end quote. His point is that teaching about marriage within the New Testament slowly took over in the Roman world in such a way that limited the power and lack of accountability that was given to the head of the household and brought a dignity to a woman and her body in a way that no other force in history had ever done. Holland goes on to argue that Christian teaching about sexuality is what undergirds the Me Too movement of today. So even if our initial sensibilities are disturbed by the New Testament on these matters, a historically honest approach suggests that where we stand today is largely indebted to them. And verse 7 is no small part of that picture. To male heads of households, this kind of tenderness, honoring a woman, is radical and deeply rooted in the God who made men and women equal in his sight as co-image bearers. An equality that all ancient cultures, including Judaism, distorted. And an equality that many cultures still distort today, including our own culture, in ongoing ways. Peter's words here serve as a beautiful corrective to that problem that we should celebrate. And Peter raises the stakes in this, particularly for husbands, as high as he can. He says, look, guys, live in this way with your wives so that nothing will hinder your prayers at the end of verse 7. Basically, if you won't listen to me on this, then God won't listen to you. God cares deeply, husbands, about how we treat our wives. So in sum, all three of, these, uh, of all three of these sections, to slaves, to wives, to husbands, Peter is saying, look, live good lives, do good, and so silence the naysayers and hopefully bring some of them to know Jesus. Live your lives that, in a way that compels them to see the power of God at work in you and through you. That's what Peter says. That's how we're going to play well in the rules of a game that we didn't create and cannot change. But what if that doesn't work? What if you do all this and people don't stop slandering, maligning, and mistreating? Then this is what Peter says. Suffer well. Suffer well. 
I know that's not what you or I think of when we think of God's purposes for our life. We want deeper biblical knowledge. We want a more meaningful way of expressing the gifts God has given us. We want a vocation that contributes to the good of our day. We want a greater opportunity to use our gifts. We want social transformation in the city of Boston. And all of those things are good. But Peter says here that God's will for you, at least in some cases, begins here. Suffer well. And he will work out his purposes in your lives even through suffering. On what basis does Peter give this exhortation? Here we come to the final section that we want to look at. For going back to verse 21 of chapter 2, Peter says, To this you were called. And that this here is the suffering for doing good that he had mentioned in regard to slaves. Why? He says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. And that word literally, example, implies something that can be traced, like the letters of an alphabet that a child would sit down and trace over to learn how to write. Or like as a child, you would take a piece of blank paper and put it on top of a picture, begin to trace it out. That's what that word implies of example. Leaving you an example. And Peter pushes further that you should follow in his steps. Walk where Jesus walked, Peter says. Jesus shows us a life of freedom and dignity in an oppressive world that rejected him. His life is such a powerful example of goodness and love. And we're called to to follow in his footsteps. And that's what Jesus said as he headed toward Jerusalem to take up the cross. He said to his disciples, look, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow in my footsteps. As he embodies the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 23, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The heart was different. Not embittered. Not made enslaved to anger. Not viciously seeking revenge. Not hating his enemies. Not hating those who opposed his quest for justice. As we are so prone to do with those who are on the opposite side of issues in our polarized society today. No, this was about for Jesus showing us the meekness of the Son of God. The purity of a heart of pure love. How might we follow in those footsteps? Because we've entrusted ourselves to God, Peter says, like Jesus did. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. There will be a reckoning, a day when justice prevails, but we may not see that day in our lifetime. And certainly Peter's readers did not expect to see it in theirs, just as Jesus did not see it in this lifetime, but went to the cross. He didn't see it until he was raised, as will be the case with us. Even on the cross, Jesus forgave. So yes, be active in pursuing justice, but also suffer well. Let the example of your gentle and loving spirit be evident to all with whom you interact. Show proper submission for the Lord's sake to those to whom you are to give submission. And even when they mistreat you, God will be honored by your life, by your heart, by your willingness to suffer well, Peter says. Many of you will know this story of Ruby Bridges, the six-year-old African-American girl integrating the France school in New Orleans in November of of 1960. It's a very well-known story. 
that by the, the laws that had changed, that she was sent into this school and her parents had raised her in the church and taught her the way of Jesus. And one day she's walking in as she did every day, uh, escorted by federal marshals, marshals, and she stops after a, a white woman hurls insults at her and a, a white man uh, spits at her and, and she stops and she mutters something as her teacher watches from the window. The teacher wanted to know what it was that she said to them and she asked the marshal who was with her that morning and he told her that Ruby wasn't speaking to the angry protesters but instead she was praying. And she told the marshal that she had been taught by her parents and by her church about the example of Jesus and that she regularly prayed for those who hurled insults at her every morning as she went to school. Ruby said, quote, the minister said, God is watching. There she is living in the sight of God as Peter so encourages his readers here. And then she says, and he won't forget because he never does. The minister says, if I forgive the people and smile at them and pray for them, then God will keep a good eye on everything and he'll be our protection. That's walking like Jesus walked. And as we close, we ask, well, how can I do that? This seems utterly impossible. Well, Peter gives us the answer in verses 24 and 25. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus was not just an example. He didn't just live a life, the contours of which we are to trace with our own lives. But he was also an atoning sacrifice who bore in himself our sins and who made it possible for us to be cleansed and forgiven and to be empowered by the spirit that he would send that we might now not live for sin any longer, as Peter says, but live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Healed from sin, from guilt and from shame. Healed from fear and from trying to save ourselves. Now as the forgiven, as the rescued, we are, as verse 24 says, to live for righteousness. We were straying, Peter says, we were off base, but now we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. God is watching, God is overseeing, God is caring for us as a shepherd. And as we live before him doing good, as we honor the authority in our lives, as we endure suffering, it is here in these places that God is with us and shining through us into our world. We live our lives as his chosen ones, as the holy nation, as a people who have received mercy. And we live them before him in all the different places that God has sent us, reflecting the heart of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the way of Jesus to all the world by his power alone. This is not a typical way that we're encouraged, but it's a deeply biblical way. It's a deeply Christ-like way. And I submit to you finally that there is nothing more dignified than that. And Peter is teaching that to slaves, to wives, to husbands, and to every single one of us who call Jesus Lord. Let's pray. Father, may we see the beauty of your son. And in every place that you have called us, every relationship, every structure, may we reflect that beauty as those who have been healed. May it be for your sake, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen.